Welcome to Be Happy, a podcast by the Hepatitis B Foundation discussing all things related to hepatitis B. If you enjoy listening to Be Happy, please give it a review and consider supporting our program. The link to donate in the description. Thank you for listening and enjoy this informative episode. It's your hosts, Evangeline and Bright. And today we are joined with Dr. Gish to talk about hepatitis delta. Welcome, Dr. Gish, and please introduce yourself. Thanks for having me here. I'm very happy to be part of this. I'm Dr. Robert Gish. I'm based in San Diego, but I work with patients throughout California and Nevada through many teaching sites and clinical sites, including a federal, rural, and multiple specialty practices, and also a number of universities. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. Gish. Bright here. To begin, what is hepatitis delta and how is it related to hepatitis B? So hepatitis delta or hepatitis D, we say D is in deadly, is a virus that's a small RNA virus. This means it has slightly different coding than other viruses we're fam- familiar with. And RNA is a type of virus that people are familiar with now because COVID is an RNA virus. But this virus is very clever. It's an incomplete virus. It's actually closely related to some plant viruses. It requires hepatitis B for packaging and it requires host, the human liver enzymes for replication. Clever virus, it piggybacks on B, it only occurs in hepatitis B patients, but it accelerates the liver disease when Delta and B are together. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. So how would you describe hepatitis delta to someone just newly diagnosed? So there are viruses together and these two viruses amplify the inflammation, the response, the fibrotic response, the chance of developing cirrhosis, cancer, liver failure, passing from uh, liver disease, liver failure. This is a very, very important uh, piece of knowledge to communicate to patients. Oh, I have a quick question. Can you pass hepatitis delta on to anybody? Yes. So when a person has delta hepatitis, they also have, have hepatitis B and they can transmit B and delta together to a new individual. Other cases, there are people with chronic hepatitis B, they acquire delta and of course they're acquiring uh, or infected with delta hepatitis and they're probably getting B at the same time but their current B infection dominates, but Delta comes in and accelerates. Uh, So Dr. Gish, why in the world would you say hepatitis Delta is most common? And do you know why this is the case? Fantastic question. I'll take the second part first. We, We don't know why Delta tends to cluster in certain parts of the world. It may have some issues of genetics and may have some issues with behavior in those regions. But three of the top hotspots that I think about are Mongolia, Pakistan, and Northwestern South America along the Amazon River Basin. There are other places where Delta is common as well. There's multiple countries in Africa. There's also Central Asia and also Eastern Europe. Also big is Italy and Turkey and somewhat in Greece, although those are starting to decrease because of vaccination, but increasing again because there's immigration from Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and Africa into these Northern European regions. Oh, wow. That's, that's very interesting that there's a decrease, but then because of immigration, it's picking up again. That's, that's really interesting. 
Yeah, I never, I never knew that hepatitis delta was um, endemic to certain areas, or and I think that's fascinating. But I guess it's also just like hepatitis B in that way. So why should people care about hepatitis delta? You mentioned that it accelerates liver disease and such, but are there other reasons? I think that is a huge issue. If you think about this right now, we have two people dying every minute from liver disease, and most of it is viral hepatitis related. Of course, alcohol and fatty liver are accelerating right now. People should know about Delta for their personal health reasons because of this high uh, mortality, this high chance of dying, but also they can transmit Delta to other individuals. And of course, B vaccination is going to prevent hepatitis B transmission, and it also prevents Delta transmission. So carrying the message about testing and vaccination is very important. Perfect. So the best way to prevent Delta is through the hepatitis B vaccination. Correct. Great. <laughs> so how, how and why did you first become knowledgeable about hepatitis Delta? I was based in San Francisco for a large transplant program, and I helped uh, develop a whole network of outreach clinics, helped lead the transplant program and liver program at this institution for a long time, it's almost 20 years. And during that time, of course, I was aware of Delta dating back to 1976, I think, when Dr. Rosetto published the first paper. And read about this also in the 1990s because Delta hepatitis was being researched as part of the transplant world with a great paper in New England Journal of Medicine by, by Dr. Samuel in 1994. And I said, it's time to test all of our B patients for Delta. And we did uh, do a lot of testing after 2005 and found a large number of Delta positive cases. We tested about 500 people. Uh, and found uh, 7% of those patients were Delta infected. Most of them had cirrhosis or needed a transplant or advanced liver disease or liver cancer. And I knew D was for deadly. And it was time to raise awareness for the world through research publications and education. Oh, that's, that's really interesting to know that it's been around that long when you first realized it. I mean, that's a long time. Yeah, and it's, I feel like it's only getting some recognition now, especially from Gilead is what I've been hearing. So you mentioned that you started testing all hepatitis B patients for hepatitis Delta. And now there's a movement to screen all people living with hepatitis B for hepatitis Delta. Could you talk about that? Well, as you know, the CDC has a document out right now for public comment about screening all adults for hepatitis B with what's called the triple panel. And they really realize, just like with hepatitis C and with HIV, that risk-based testing is a failure. If we're going to get to elimination of viral hepatitis by 2030, or even close, we need to make this very simple. So you make it simple by testing everybody, and then you link them to care. In the hepatitis B world, B as in boy, we want to check all B patients for Delta. Make it simple. We know that testing is maybe occurring in 20% of people, even at risk people is best at 20%. So we're failing with risk-based testing for Delta. So it's time to reflex from surface antigen positive 
to delta antibody testing. And if delta antibody is testing, we need a confirmatory test with delta RNA, quantitative assay. That's the simple path forward and allows us to participate in a vigorous elimination plan. Yeah, that sounds like a very good pathway for providers to start using to start um, testing for hepatitis delta. So what do you think are some of the biggest barriers to overcome in raising hepatitis delta awareness and screening rates? First is the guidelines or are the guidelines making it complicated to do anything with B or delta. If we're going to get to elimination, we're going to build an issue such as infectivity and stigma. We really need to make this simple. We clearly have failed in our elimination efforts to date, and we're moving to test all. So that's an important change. The guidelines need to change. And that is, I think, harmonizing AASLD guidelines with EASL guidelines, where the EASL, E-A-S-L, recommends testing everybody who's surface antigen positive. And I think that is the state of the art. Other barriers, tests, just test availability. Some parts of the world, there's no Delta antibody tests and definitely no Delta PCR testing. So we have geographic variations. In the US, we have a problem because one of our major labs, LabCorp, does not have Delta antibody or Delta PCR. I predict through vigorous activities inside LabCorp that that will be fixed this year. Reference labs like AREP and Quest have moved forward in the last six to eight years early to get their Delta testing online and have it widely available. There's some other laboratory tests such as Mayo Clinic, which has antibody, but needs to bring their PCR quant online. Another lab I work with called BioReference doesn't have antibody or PCR testing available. Some labs have IgM Delta uh, available, but that is a worthless test clinically uh, and doesn't signify any specific Delta infection message, unfortunately. So we need to make sure it's clean, simple, reflex, antibody, total antibody, reflexing the quant RNA. There's also this theory that why test for Delta? I've never seen it. Well, if you don't test, you won't see it. Its prevalence rates probably about of surface antigen positive patients. And we have to remember, we have 2.4 million people in the US that are surface antigen positive. So 4% of 2.4 million is relatively low. You're talking about the 100 to 150,000 range. So we need to go look for this, but at a deadly disease at 70%, that message just doesn't seem to get through to test everybody, find the 4% and move forward with linkage to care. In the linkage to care world, there's this theory, we have nothing to treat Delta, so why test? Well, first, if you find Delta, you're gonna be doing uh, surveillance testing much more frequently. You're gonna educate patients more. That's a big part of therapy is education. You're also gonna test contacts of those individuals for B and Delta. You'll counsel them about weight loss if they have fatty liver. You'll counsel them about no alcohol if there's alcohol intake. There's a lot to therapy besides a pill or an injection. Now that there are evolving new therapies that may be approved, I predict one will be approved this year and another new one next year. As those therapies come online, people become more interested interested because they think, quote, there's something I can do. 
but let's get the message out. There's a lot to do before we get these new therapies. I really liked how you mentioned that piece about how like, you know, therapies can be not all medical, right? So we are like treating our other symptoms as well. So there's no treatment to Delta. Is that correct? Currently? There is a treatment. It's not FDA approved for Delta, but that's interferon, pegylated interferon. It has lots of side effects. It's expensive. And the cure rate, and I'm going to be very careful about how I define cure now. There is no cure for Delta, but we can clear the virus. I call it a maintained virologic response, an MVR. That means you've cleared the RNA long-term. With interferon, peg interferon, that MVR rate is 15 to 20%. You're going to help one out of five people. But you have a deadly disease such as cancer. We treat people all the time with only a 20% response. Delta should be looked at as let's start talking about therapy now. Think about interferon, include patients in clinical trials, or if you decide not to treat with interferon today, keep those closely followed as new therapies emerge. That is interesting. I did not know that. And then, so is PEG interferon a treatment for hepatitis B as well? So if you treat your hepatitis B, you treat your hepatitis delta? It does have some benefit for B, but it's also in less than 20% of patients. And there's specific rules about who it's working on, who it's not working on, such as quantitative S antigen. So peg interferon is not an optimal choice when we have these oral therapies that, you know, suppress virus over 90% of the time. But nonetheless, interferon, if you use peg interferon, it's going to help B and Delta potentially at the same time. So if you have, if you're living with hepatitis B and you're just taking medicine for hepatitis B, that does not impact your Delta at all, or it does? It does not change the viral load of the Delta. Okay. By pressing the B, you can slow down the B component. And most people who are specialists in Delta will treat any DNA level that's positive. So in hepatitis B, we quantified the DNA. If the DNA is measurable, boom, they should be on a nuke. That's what we call TDF, TAF, or entecavir, and suppress that virus to undetectability because B and Delta are both contributing to the liver disease. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Just on that, uh, Dr. Gage, aside from interferon, is there any other uh, treatment that is in the pipeline for hepatitis D? The two treatments we were hinting at today that one will be approved, I believe this year called Bulevertide. It is being developed by Gilead with Evangelina had mentioned before. Uh, That medication is a once a day injectable that will be used according to the label chronically. There is data emerging though that it can be used with pegylated interferon short-term with very high viral clearance. So that's number one. Number two is another medicine called Lonafarnib, which is being developed by Iger, which I believe will be approved next year. Lonafarnib is a pill. It is a pill that will be released, hopefully when approved, be released as a combination pill with ritonavir. This is a boosting agent 
it gets more medication to the liver and less to the systemic circulation. Alone, lonafarnib can clear Delta virus uh, from the bloodstream, uh, but that's going to be in a low number of people, maybe 10 to 20%. And it's usually people with a low viral load. Lonafarnib, when it's approved, again, I'm saying this when, but it's an if, when it's approved, will be approved in combination with interferon. First, pegylated interferon, and then eventually, hopefully, the following year, lambda interferon, which has less side effects. Back to peg interferon and bulevertide. This emerging data about peg interferon plus bulevertide may allow us, within a year of treatment and then stopping, viral clearance rates in excess of 60%. So let's hope that all these medicines are approved this year, next year, as I've outlined. There are other compounds in development. There's a release agent, a packaging agent that stops packaging of a Delta and ND. That's a REP, R-E-P compound. It's called the NAP, N-A-P. That has been in development for about a decade I'm not sure of its path forward to approval because they needed to change from intravenous preparation to a subcutaneous preparation, which is now evolving. Once that sub-Q medication, injectable medication, has a little bit more data, then a roadmap towards FDA approval may occur. That's very hopeful. I mean, 60% is really, it's really great. So. Uh, that's really good to hear. And hopefully, like you said, everything goes as planned and then they get released or approved when the time is right for that. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will be very grateful for the approval process. So that's so exciting. How would you go about preparing patients for these potential future treatments that may become available? Start by educating the patient now that these new treatments are coming brief outline about injection, pills, combination, long-term, short-term treatment. Uh, I would make sure they stay even more engaged, but they should be really engaged if you educate them properly about Delta. So I think that's a quick outline. Engage, follow, educate, uh, work with your patients as a partnership. That is great advice for healthcare professionals. Do you have any concerns about barriers for treatment that may become available in the near future? Absolutely. Whenever we have a new treatment, it is going to be expensive. That, uh, that's always the case, right? That's how things work in medicine. It costs money to develop these medicines and the companies need to be reimbursed for their development costs, of course, and future. The second part of this will be insurance companies. So you have a cost issue, then the insurance companies always seem to like to use the word barrier. Oh, I'm sorry, they don't use the word barrier. They like to use the word pre-authorization or formulary. There's other events that occur in getting that medication to the patient. I wish I could say the insurance companies were our partner in this, but you learn from the hepatitis C world that the insurance companies were more interested in their profit margins than the patients. And through all sorts of advocacy and even legal action, we were able to move hepatitis C treatment to all infected individuals. I'm hoping the insurance companies either don't have this on their radar 
or realize how deadly Delta is and all patients should be offered treatment uh, with these new uh, medications. Let's keep our fingers crossed and let's hope we can work together to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so too. I think it's always the, the cost. And then, like you said, with the insurance issues that tend to also scare people from even trying, uh, trying to get on treatment to begin with. So um, let's hope that that is not the case when these treatments become available so lives can be saved. Yes. So um, I guess with all this potential new treatment that may become available, what would you do to help prepare physicians like hepatologists and um, liver specialists for these future treatments? What would you suggest to them? Really, it's going to take a multifactorial approach. So what I mean by that is we need to partner with ASLD and EASL and APOSL, other uh, global organizations, national and re- regional organizations. We have uh, organizations with the Hepatitis B Foundation, National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable, American Liver Foundation. These are national organizations and through CME, education, publications, webcasts, webinars, blogs, news feeds, social media, LinkedIn. We really need to connect with people and use the rule of sevens. People usually don't change their behavior until they hear something seven times. Let's get the seven messages out to all the providers who are taking care of B patients and get them educated about Delta. Obviously, with the new guidelines coming from the CDC to test all adults for hepatitis B, we're going to need to do education on the B front. So let's make sure everybody knows their ABCDs. Great. That's some great advice. Great collaborative effort from everyone, you know, across the United States and internationally as well. On this side, looking at clinical trials, what what would you say or what would be an advice you would give to someone who is interested in participating in any clinical trial out there for hepatitis B Delta? Well, right now, the only open trial is one through IGER. And there are ways to get to the IGER trials by going through their website. There's also portals through the .gov. There's portals through the Hepatitis B Foundation. So do a web search reach out to Hepatitis B Foundation. We have what's called Delta Connect. They can use that as a resource to get connected to clinical trials. Yeah, we have like a pretty good, robust clinical trial finder on our website. So what types of resources do you think hepatitis Delta patients could benefit from that they do not know currently exist? Well, I think there's a big effort to have the storytelling messages also be built around hepatitis Delta patients, networking Delta patients through hopefully a new website that might be patient oriented where they can talk to each other. We have these online support groups for many other diseases, whether they be rare or common. And I think that type of portal should be developed. And I think it would be a great idea. Uh, We should make sure the search engines such as Google point patients in the correct direction towards Delta. Organizations like the Hepatitis B Foundation really help with this as well as their online services for emails and phone calls. Give patients and their support uh, individuals the right and correct information and remove any misinformation from the internet and other education sites. Do you have anything that you personally recommend hepatitis Delta patients? 
I try to recruit them to be involved with our different efforts at the Hepatitis B Foundation. There's other organizations like ALF and NVHR that are involved. So I really tell them, get involved yourself with this advocacy. I do point them to Delta Connect. I point them to my own website, robertgish.com. There's a lot of Delta resources on my website. I don't know of any other Delta websites that are patient pointing right now, but I'm going to continue to search. So is there anything else you would like to share about hepatitis Delta that you think will be beneficial to people living with hepatitis B and hepatitis D or hepatitis B alone, their families and the community in general? I'm going to say that there's a lot of under testing for B and Delta. And patients and their families, once they're aware about Delta, can help get involved in that educational process. The patients themselves can link with each other, be looking for refreshers and updates through our Delta Connect website. And there's a lot of educational programs that are ongoing. There was recently a Delta roundtable that took place that was patient-focused, I believe there'll be a document coming out from that that we should share with all of our patients as well. It was a great collaboration between Hepatitis B Foundation, American Liver Foundation, NASDAD, NVHR, other organizations. We're going to expand the involvement of the Hepatitis B Task Force and Hepatitis B United in these efforts. I really think social media is a way to spread the word and we'll ask our patients and their support uh, world just to make sure they're spreading and sharing the correct information on Delta. That's a fairly good summary, but I think we can start there. That's very great, uh, Dr. Jish. I think uh, you highlight uh, the importance of education. And then I think the patient networking, it's also a really important aspect. As, as patients, we need each other's support. And sometimes just sharing something can lift someone's spirit up in times of Difficulty. So I think that's really important. Thank you for that last words. You know, we're just starting to kick off publicly all the good work about hepatitis delta. This has been great. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, Evangeline and Bright, for your fantastic questions, your kind words, and being part of our next wave. We're calling it the Delta Force. Oh, I like that. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> I'm happy to be part of the Delta Force. If you're interested in learning more about Hepatitis Delta, please go to hepb.org, go under what is Hepatitis B, and then click on the Hepatitis Delta co-infection page. Thank you for listening to this episode. Stay tuned and subscribe for future episodes about Hepatitis B. If you have any questions, please direct them to info at hepb.org. You can support our programs at the Hepatitis B Foundation by going to www.hepb.org donate or click on the link in this page. We greatly appreciate all your support and thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.